Is a joke still funny if you have to explain it? I hope so, because that's what I'm going to try to do today. I noticed this most years at Easter, and I wanted to bring your attention to it. It's essentially that there's quite a lot in the resurrection accounts that is funny. And usually when Christians talk about things that make us smile, uh, we use the word joy uh, rather than happy or funny. And I'm totally fine with that because joy is a much more robust word as we're going to see today. But what it can't mean is something that doesn't make you smile, something that doesn't make your shoulders feel a bit lighter, make the world just feel a bit more of a wonderful place. And, um, and so I want you to see today, I want us to see today that one of the things the resurrection means is joy now and forever. And the accounts of Jesus' resurrection prove this, not just by what they're telling us, but how they are telling us it. The fact that I genuinely think there are meant to be some funny moments in this. This joy that Christians talk about that that, that we mean isn't a happiness based simply on what's going on in our lives, which is just as well. Um, All the good things of life can cause us joy. Of course they can. But Christian joy comes from somewhere else, somewhere, something, someone greater. And I want us to look at that today. And And so I want us to look through a lot of different bits of scripture, and we're going to see how joy seems to just follow Jesus around, how there is humor, irony, joy in the resurrection accounts, and therefore we'll conclude pretty quickly that joy is meant to be part of how Christians experience our lives now, because the resurrection has begun. And if you've got some more questions on this uh, or the resurrection itself, or you want uh, a bit more balance than I'm going to give in this preach to the variety of emotions that Christians uh, should and do experience, I'd love you to join me afterwards at 11.45 on Zoom. We're going to have another I Have Questions session. Uh, We've been having great discussions at these times. You're really welcome to join, bring a question or just listen, and uh, we'll have some great chat together. All the info for that will be um, in the YouTube chat um, at the end of the service. But for now, why don't we pray? And why don't we pray that God would give us and help us to see his desire for us to have joy. Holy Spirit, we just ask you now to fill each one of us. Oh, Lord, wherever we are, however we're feeling, whatever our current understanding of you is, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, and that you would cause our mouths to to smile as we see and hear your goodness. Holy Spirit, help us with this, please, I pray. Amen. Amen. So before Jesus even came to earth, he was causing joy. In Job 38 verse 7, uh, we're told about the reaction in heaven to when Jesus is making uh, all of creation. And it says that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Psalm 16 verse 11 declares that in Jesus' presence is fullness of joy. And so it's no surprise really that when Jesus came to earth, his birth was heralded as good news of great joy. And joy just seems to follow him around wherever he goes, whatever he's doing. It might have been the shouts of people astonished to have been healed or to have witnessed a healing. It might have been the songs sung by crowds of children uh, who he welcomed to him. It was a great atmosphere wherever Jesus was. 
Now, his critics accused him of being a glutton, being a drunkard, because he went to parties and he was the honoured guest at he was the honoured guest at those parties. But for Jesus, those meals, those celebrations were signs of what he had come to achieve, and the sign was connected to the thing signified. So he tells us stories about parties, and he says, "I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." There's joy in heaven because of the things that Jesus is doing. He makes that repentance possible. He makes that joy possible, both in heaven and on earth. And joy is part of his ambition for us. He says in John 15, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that he was never serious or grieved or angry. We see all of these things and more in the Gospels. He was said by Isaiah to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But it was also said of him that God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. The word is joy beyond your companions. That's Psalm 45 saying that Jesus is the happiest person who has ever lived. And the Easter weekend brings these two extremes of emotion and extremes of experience to their fullest. There's the suffering and the weeping of Friday. There's the strange silence of Saturday. But then there is Sunday. And with all due reverence, I want to say that the gospel writers want us to find this funny. Like somewhat, there's more to it than that, but this is in it and we too often miss it. And I want us to see it today as we understand joy as God's will for us. So look, here we go. In Matthew's account, after Jesus has been crucified, the next morning, uh, the priests and the Pharisees, they're still worried because they think that the disciples will steal Jesus' body and then pretend that he's risen from the dead. And so they go to Pilate and they say, look, please, could you put some soldiers around the tomb so that no one can steal the body? And to which Pilate replies, Go, make it as secure as you can. Now, I don't know if Pilate's earnest at this point or he's just fed up with them for causing trouble. But Matthew knows what's going to happen next. And Matthew knows, but I think that we know what's going to happen next. And so he wants us to find in Pilate's words and the priest's actions an amusing irony. It's like... Give it your best shot, guys. You want to keep him down? You want him not to be uh, declared resurrected? Well, try your best. There was already a great stone, Matthew says, across the tomb's entrance. And now soldiers from the world's greatest military machine are on guard. And so what's the next thing that happens? The soldiers have fainted and the stone has been rolled away by an angel who is now sitting on it. So all your great schemes, good work. It didn't work. Luke takes up the story and he, he um, says some of the things that he tells us some of the things that the angels uh, said to the first women to visit the tomb. They say to him, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, this is the kind of thing that often when we read the Bible, we kind of say it like these angels are like philosophers, very disinterested in the whole thing. Or, or I don't know, just like, you know, why do you seek the living among the dead? That kind of thing. I'm not sure that's what's going on. I think they're like, what are you doing here? You're not going to find him here. This is a grave. You're going to find the Lord of life in a grave. Why do you seek him here among the dead? No, I think that's what's going on because Jesus picks up on this atmosphere himself. 
And Luke goes on from telling the story of the women uh, encountering Jesus uh, to some men on the road to Emmaus. And they, they're walking along and then Jesus starts walking with them and they don't know it's him. So already there's a little bit of kind of that, um, you know, mistaken identity thing going on. And, and they say to Jesus, have you not heard about the things that have been happening? And he says to them, what things? Like, really? What things? Like, who knows better than Jesus what things have just been happening? And yet he says to them, yeah, what things? You know, and I think it's because he wants to draw things out of them and they start telling him. And then he's very Jesus to them. He's like, I can't believe you didn't believe that he was going to do this. And here's how it all fits together in the Bible. But they still don't recognize him. And then it comes to the end of their walk. And he's like, oh, I'm going to keep going, actually. And they say, no, don't, please. It's like he's teasing them to keep him to stay. And they sit down, they have a meal together and he breaks the bread. And then they realize it's him. And then he's gone. He's just gone. He was there. They would have had a million questions for him, but no, he's gone. And so what do they do? They've walked a long way and the night's a dangerous time to walk, but they want to get back to the other disciples. So they run back to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they find the other disciples. None of them are asleep either because some of them have seen him too. And they're all like, what is going on? This is just amazing. And they're so excited and they don't quite know what's happening. And then he's there. He just appears in the middle of, of the room. He doesn't knock. He doesn't give them any warning. He's just there. And he says, peace be to you. And they scream. <laughs> because why wouldn't you? <laughs> because the one who they had seen murdered has risen from the dead. And he can now do anything. One of my favorite phrases in the whole of the Bible, Luke says, that they disbelieved for joy. It's like they couldn't quite dare to realize what had happened, that he had actually done what he said he was going to do, that he had been risen from the dead. And, you know, what were their minds thinking at that point? Like, this changes everything. This is a new creation. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Wow, he's really there. Oh, what's he saying? So, yeah, Jesus, what? You want something to eat? That's what he says. He says, have you got something to eat? What do you give the God man? What do you give the Lord of life? What do you give the firstborn from among the dead to eat? <laughs> well, it turns out that a piece of broiled fish is what they had. And that's what he accepts. And he eats it so that they know it really, really is him. John continues with some of the later resurrection accounts. And fish is involved again. Jesus is... I don't want to say it like this, but I'm going to say it like this. It's like he's appearing and disappearing at will. He's there, then he's not. Uh, it's almost like he's more enigmatic than ever in some ways. And Peter clearly is finding this difficult. He doesn't really know where he stands with Jesus anymore because, of course, on the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter, having said, I'll never deny you, I'll always be faithful, denied him three times. And, and I don't know how Peter's feeling about the whole thing. And so he goes back to doing what basically is like the thing he knows how to do, which is to go fishing. He was a fisherman before Jesus came along. Maybe he needs to go back to being a fisherman and he takes some of the others with him. Only it doesn't really work. John, who was one of the guys fishing that night, says um, in his gospel, that night they caught nothing. What a miserable long shift that must have been. You've got Peter grumbling away. You've got the others not quite sure what's going on and they're not catching any fish. But you know what's worse than not having caught any fish? In the morning, after a long night's work, someone standing on the shoreline saying, hey, have you caught anything? 
Like, who wants to hear that? <laughs> and of course, who is it? It's Jesus. And he knows they haven't caught anything. So why is he doing it? He could say, guys, you haven't caught anything, don't worry, and you can't worry. He doesn't. He says, have you caught anything? And they reply, no. And then Jesus says, well, try over there. And suddenly the nets are full to breaking. And they realize who it is, and Peter and his passion, it is Jesus. He leaps out of the boat and he swims to the shore. And then John says, well, the rest of us came in the boat just after him. That was fine. And, and what do they find? Jesus has already got fish. He's, make, he's got a barbecue going. He's cooking the fish. There's bread for them as well. And he says to them, come and have breakfast. I mean, again, just this is John's gospel. So the start of John's gospel in the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Was not anything made that was not made by him. This is the word. And he is saying to Peter, who's soaking wet, and to the other six who don't really know where, what they're doing, where they should be, he says to them, well, come and have breakfast. I just, you know, meals are meant to be celebrations in the Bible. They are, they're moments of joy. That is what this meal is, this breakfast on a beach with, oh, by the way, 153 fish caught as well. Because what does it tell us about God? That The way that he often shows himself to us, reveals himself to us, is through abundance. Oh, happy days. Now, of course, there are moments of great tenderness in these resurrection stories as well. Mary Magdalene weeping. I, do you know where he is? I, I, don't know where, I don't know where they've taken my Lord, she says. And Jesus doesn't joke with her. He says, Mary. And then Peter himself, just after this breakfast, he's restored by Jesus. His three denials are now matched with three affirmations of his love. And Jesus says, I'm going to wipe away all that past. I'm going to free you from it that you might serve me. It's Jesus. So he still speaks sternly. He still speaks bluntly and confusingly. And he gives them a commission at the end of Matthew's gospel that's going to cost almost all of them their lives. But the joy here, the sheer humor and happiness of God's victory is not to be missed. And the, the ironies of this, they, they deepen, they are inescapable, they're, desi they're designed to astonish us and, and, and even to make us laugh with joy. You've got the might of Rome and you've got the religious fervor of the priests and you've got the schemes of Satan and all of these huge powers work together for their defeat and for the victory of God. The resurrection takes place in a garden. When's the first garden in the Bible? It's in Eden, and that is the place of our fall. That's where it all goes wrong. And now the garden is where we realize it's actually all going to go right. There were angels, Genesis 3 tells us, that guarded the way uh, out of the garden so people couldn't come back into God. Now the angels are saying to people, there's where, there's where God is. Go to him. He wants you to come to him again and to see him. All of our failures, we realize, qualify us. We thought we had to try hard. No, we couldn't do it. God needed to rescue us. And instead of taking into account all the stupid things that we've done, he has settled that account and gives us instead his riches and his perfection and his strength. The last are going to become first. The weak and the foolish have been chosen to shame the wise and the powerful. Life 
begins at a tomb. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to quote from an author who sensed this in his life, although he experienced many sorrows as well, and he, he, he expressed it in his fiction, J.R. Tolkien. With apologies for spoilers, uh, towards the end of The Lord of the Rings, uh, when the victory has been won, a character called Sam wakes up and sees another character called Gandalf, who had died but was raised to life. Sam lay back and stared with an open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not speak. At last he gasped, Gandalf! I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and laughter welled up. Laughing, he sprang from his bed. He waved his hands in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever known, he says. Later on, it's said of Gandalf that he laughs now more than he talks. Now, the comparisons here are not meant to be exact, but they were informed by Tolkien's Christian faith. And I'm sure that they are meant to give us a sense of what resurrection life is going to feel like in some measure now and in full measure for eternity to come. These feelings of joy of astonishment, of relief, of happiness, are how the Bible expects Christians to live now. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 onwards says, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this you rejoice. In this resurrection you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is the Christian life, Peter says. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is not a command to kind of cheer up, pull yourself together, find a silver lining or anything like that. This is about seeing things as they truly are and as, as they will forever be and acting accordingly. In this, Peter says, you rejoice that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Rejoice, Paul says, in the Lord, once dead, now alive. Rejoice in him always. Moreover, this is an invitation to become more like Jesus himself. We said earlier that it was said of him that he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. Well, Isaiah also prophesied that he would give to his people the oil of gladness, 
instead of mourning. It's Isaiah 61.3. This, this anointing oil is actually his very self. It's his spirit. Paul identified one of the fruits of the spirit, one of the characteristics of Jesus that he grows in us. In Galatians 5 uh, is joy. Jesus doesn't say, be like me and leave us to it. He gives us himself, his spirit, that spirit of joy. The resurrection of Jesus means joy now and forever. Let's sing it. Let's say it. Let's pray it. Let's laugh about it. Let's encourage one another with it. Let's share it with others. Let's get it before our eyes and get it into our hearts. Let's flavor our meals with it and our conversations with it. That sin has been defeated and death has been robbed of its power. That everything sad is going to come untrue. That weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That our God is risen, that he reigns, and that he comes to us and says, would you like some breakfast? <laughs>